HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. It is actually a beautiful day here today in Brooklyn, where we're at Roberta's Pizza, the home of Heritage. And it's actually a really great day to go fishing. Um, or um, maybe cook up some nice uh, fish tacos or filet fish sandwich or something, <laughs> steaming pile of clams. Uh, so uh, whether or not you're a fishing, fin- a fishy, a fishing aficionado... That's a good tongue twister. Or a fish aficionado <laughs> eating. Anywho, um, I didn't know that was coming. Okay, um, you have a new tongue twister. And uh, um, it's really great and helpful to have fishmongers who know how to cook. So I'm really pleased to be joined today by Stephanie Villani. She is the co-owner of Blue Moon Fish. And the new author of The Fisherman's Wife, Sustainable Recipes and Salty Stories, as as well as her uh, co-writer on this project and photographer, Kevin Bay. And he's also been a longtime fishmonger at Blue Moon Fish. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Um, So I was saying that (laughs) um, off air that I had the best dinner last night, um, thanks to your stand. 
Um, Blue Moon Fish sells at the Union Square Green Market, Grand Army Plaza Green Market here in New York City since 1988, which I didn't realize. So, got you know, 20 some years of talking to customers and bringing them their fish. Um, but I'm, I got a black bass, a whole black bass, and I cooked it last night. And it was like just the best meal. Um, I'm always trying to try some different fish from you guys. And it's so helpful to have the fishmongers who know what they're talking about and can help out. And I guess that's maybe why you decided to write this cookbook. Is that, <laughs> is that the idea? Yes, there's uh, there's been a lot of good recipes floating around the fish stand, yeah. a lot of good advice. I feel I stand there and tell people everything they need to know, mm-hmm. how, to, how to clean it, cook it, keep it. So it was about time we wrote it all down. And uh, thanks to Kevin, that project actually came to pass. That's so exciting. It's true. I think one of the first things you learn on your first day as a fishmonger at Blue Moon is that every single customer expects you to know how to cook yeah. And clean every fish. And so <laughs> you're like, wait, <laughs> you, you take home fish that night and you do an experiment or you learn and you come back the next week with knowledge mm. to impart. And I love that you guys uh, at Bloom and Fish, especially people are, uh, I don't want to say like uh, really opinionated, but you know, they can be very um, thoughtful and charismatic. It's not your, it's not your like, oh, this is great. This is great. Everything's good. Yes. Good. Awesome. They're like, you know, they really walk you through it and help you through it, which I think is really helpful. Well, a lot of people seem to have a fear of cooking fish. I don't know if it's because they're just not familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's another reason I wanted to write it. It's, you know, it's really not that difficult. What's the worst that can happen? You Mm -hmm. overcook it. And then so you adjust and try it again. Mm -hmm. Or you undercook it and you keep cooking it more. Mm -hmm. That's right. One of the other things that I think kind of happens a lot when you're a fishmonger is you identify customers that come back and get the same thing week after week after week. And you want to expand their knowledge in a certain area or get them to open up to something else. And that's another reason we wanted to do the cookbook, to kind of have a workhorse available for them, something simple as a guide. Wow. Yeah. You know, I I try to explain this to other people. It's really rare to have, like, no middleman between the fish, the fishermen, uh, there's the, you know, family-owned fishing company, um, and the fishmonger. So the store is the fishers, and and it's just coming right from the, you know, right from the trucks. It's a rare thing. Most fish uh, that people get goes from the fisherman to another person, another person, a purveyor, or another store, and on and each transaction adds a few more dollars onto the mm-hmm. price. Mm-hmm. So uh, the price that the fishermen get generally are it's very low. So for us, um, selling at the green market, we're more than happy to make the money we are because we can right. set our own price. And I think most of our customers would say we have reasonable prices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would definitely say so. And not only that, it's fresh because it didn't go through this distributor or something mm-hmm. in that time. <laughs> that well, we, have, we have control of the fish. You know, from the moment it comes out of the water, my husband puts it in ice it's handled properly the whole way through the process um being it if it's filleted or not Mm -hmm. and packed and taken to the market so i think that's another big thing we can control that quality so Mm -hmm. we have very high quality fish yeah and the people who you know you talk to and ask about they typically know when that fish was caught (laughs) which is really unique so it seems like a win-win for everyone to have this direct to the customer um, fish stand. And uh, why is that so not the case usually? Well, when you go into a normal fish store, 
You know, this just started as a sort of a sideline for Alex. When he started, he was working on big boats. That and that's your went, husband. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alex, uh, they went uh, far offshore. Mm-hmm. And he just started this thing on the side on Saturday to make some extra money. And it became so popular, it became our whole business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most fishermen, they catch the fish. It goes in a box. A f- truck comes around and picks it up at the dock. And it's gone. And then... You know, a week later, they'll get a check from the fish market. So you don't really know who gets the fish or what happens to it. You broke that chain of, yeah, the direct sort of relationship with the customer and so forth. Yeah, I think another thing that comes into play, why this is not so common that the fisherman brings the fish straight from his or her boat to To the the market, is it's a matter of personality. I think a lot of fishermen like to be alone. And um, that's a lot easier for them to just go alone, be fishing, sell it on the dock, and not have to bring it in and directly be a people person in mm-hmm. the market. That's true. I mean, t- we spend 13 hours a day at the market talking to people about recipes and what's sustainable and what fish are good and what's in right now. And many of them don't want to talk about fish or anything. <laughs> um, my husband's from the city, so he likes going into the city. He right. likes talking to people. Um, so for us, it just happened to work. But mm-hmm. I think for a, a lot of people, for the fishermen, driving into New York is a big that's hard event. Mm-hmm. That t- it takes a lot of time and a lot of extra work. And, and so I that's... saw something like eight hundred pounds of ice. You guys take oh, on your yes. you schlep around <laughs> whenever you have fish. <laughs> that's a lot. Um, yeah, it's really hard work, and I. I I didn't realize this until I read your book that um, blue moon fish was sort of a, 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 it meant that you made money every blue moon. Is that right? Once or? in a blue moon, Once in a he blue made moon. money fishing, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now that we're in the green market program, we're doing a lot better. We're okay. able to make, uh, you know, we're able to get a much better price for our product. I mean, it is a lot more work. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I guess, uncommon to have that sort of network uh, or place to sell. Right, and it's people. the same for all the farmers at the green market. You know, they're they're getting a, a better price for their produce. Um, and they even will start bringing in certain things their customers request or want. Right, I right. mean, we bring in a lot of um, fish that people might not necessarily be familiar with. Lots of local fish. And I get to talk to them and teach them what mm-hmm. they're like and, you know, I think how that's to cook fun, it. you know. Um, I'm sure you get a many, many customers who are like, where's the salmon? Oh, yes. <laughs> That's not, not in Long Island. No. But it's interesting. You also get customers that latch on to something that's so local and so rare that it happens maybe one or two weeks out of the year. Oh. And this person will come by regularly <laughs> asking for something like shad roe uh-huh. or trigger fish. Something you just T- don't see fish. that often. Uh-huh. Tile fish, mm-hmm. yeah, we're seeing it more, but it's it's sort of out there. And when they they get their catch when it's there that day, it's mm-hmm. just amazing to see them. They're so excited, you know. They're they're taking it home. They're coming back next week to tell us about their transcendent experience eating this. <laughs> it's it's a really it's it's really interesting to it's, see what people get into. It's like it's waiting for July for the or in August for the tomatoes to come in. Mm-hmm. The really good ones. You're yeah, waiting and waiting yeah. for months for them to come and finally they're here for a very short time. Yeah. And I love that you get to know about your local fishery and, and what's in season from time to time as the seasons change. You know, you don't always have the same fish. Um, why? Because the water gets warmer and so forth. You get to learn a little bit through that. 
I think most people don't know the fish migrate and they move around and there's definite seasons for each different kind of fish. And the, within the green market rules, we can only sell what we catch locally. Mm-hmm. So when tuna season's over, that's it. I don't have tuna. And I really don't eat it until the next season rolls around. Instead, we have different fish coming in, like cod or Boston mm-hmm. mackerel. So we go to those fish. Mm-hmm. And also throughout time, I, I really enjoyed, I want to talk a little bit later about like lobster and some of the things that have changed tremendously over the last 20 so years you guys have been um, working. So, um, but Kevin, you know, how hard was it to kind of compile fish that most people would know about and kind of make it relatable and also not tied to a certain time and too much? Uh, how hard was it as a fishmonger and as the writer? I think it, it comes naturally after a while to... To, to see what people like. Yeah. yeah. And to to help them expand in a way that's that's really the hard part is you don't want to push them so far if somebody is a flounder eater which is a white mild mm-hmm. fish you don't want to push them straight into bluefish which is as very oily very flavorful mm-hmm. and can almost scare them away for life if they're not prepared for it i know you like flavorful <laughs> I love fish the bluefish mm-hmm. yeah it is so good and you don't see that too often which is too bad but you know i mean from uh other places let's say it's not as common as flounder or cod see that's surprising to me you know um because we bluefish has a real following and other fish too like say whole herring Mm. um we end up selling a lot of that and i just think it's not available it's people don't think it will sell or something right right. but i have a lot of customers who are familiar with it like maybe european customers Mm. and then i have a lot of people who will give it a try Mm mm-hmm which is nice. So we do and quite they well. Devotees of this fish. Yes. Yeah, that is less often fish. And then there's this whole category of trash fish, which I know a lot of folks have been trying to get on the menus more often because um, you know they're here, <laughs> they're yeah. available, mm-hmm. and they're certainly more sustainable and plentiful than than other types, which can be challenging and dwindling. I'll, I'll tell you, there's so many porgies around right mm-hmm. now. The fishermen are trying to go in areas where they are not there <laughs> because there's too many. I think my husband caught 2,000 pounds in half an hour. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yeah, so that's a fish that seems to be going from a trash fish to a more desirable fish. Um, I've noticed that on many menus they're calling it Montauk Sea Bream. Oh. Instead of porgy. Rebranding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, do you get this? A lot of people ask for something like Branzino, or because I hear all that's just like a that's just like a catch-all for whatever. Whole it is. Fish. <laughs> that's so hard to deal with too, because yeah. you have to educate. There's this whole world of common names mm-hmm. that, that that the wider markets that sell fish or menus have implanted in our minds, but they don't mean a specific fish all the time and so we find ourselves saying we have fish like branzino and it's like red snapper right Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. explaining what they are and that's you know think about it when you go to the grocery store it's hard to to become educated in that environment because you're taking in so much and you have a list of Mm -hmm. things you need and um i think that's that's a big challenge at the market is is educating people and just through repetition, we're able to achieve it, you know. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of times I'll ask them how they want to cook the fish. You mm-hmm. know, if, if they want to grill it, I can recommend certain fish. If they want a firm fish, like blackfish is a good, mild, mm-hmm. firm fish to recommend. Yeah. Other, If they want to eat something raw, that is a whole nother group of fish. 
mm-hmm. you know, I can recommend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I was just going to say, I think that's a very successful way to handle those. I come from a science background and Mm -hmm. I have tried the, (laughs) the like classification (laughs) route of education. (laughs) Most customers don't respond to that. It's more like, how do you want to cook it? How, what kind of fish, what do you want it to taste like? And we can work with that in a lot. It's a lot easier. It is funny that there is this divide between the branding or marketing names of things. And then the reality of, of, you know, and there's so many different names for the same fish, you know, as, as I'm sure you guys know. I don't even know half of it. But um, I thought it was funny when you guys noted that diver scallops are not really diver <laughs> caught usually. <It's, laughs> what's the deal with that? Well, apparently there is a really small fishery in Maine where uh-huh. people do dive in shallow water for scallops at a certain Wait, point in the summer. In shallow water. <laughs> okay. Fairly shallow water. Uh-huh. I mean, out here, the scallops, we get them with dredges but they're in hundreds of feet of water in the north atlantic people are not diving for those scallops it's just a marketing term that you see on the menu right right i just imagine this like you know this guy diving for these beautiful gems he's got (laughs) his little sack with him attached to his dive costume (laughs) and he puts them in there one at a time maybe you could start adding like other random terms to kind (laughs) of boost the i don't know the sexiness yeah. <laughs> fish. Spear-cut porgy. That could be one. Uh, spear Actually, yeah. I think that there's a good name that you have for a very, very unattractive-looking fish, okay. which um, is the sea robin. Mm-hmm. Sea robin sounds nice, right? That fish is very <laughs> unattractive-looking. Yes, it is. It's true. It, it goes by another name, though. Dogfish, I believe? Or no? No, that's, Sorry, a, that's, that's, that's a, a sand shark. shark. That's yeah. a shark. Yeah. Okay. I, I Oh, I was just going to say, I did have a chef call that scorpion fish, mm-hmm. yes. which is a much better name to put on the menu. I think it's mm-hmm. related to a sea robin, maybe mm. not exactly the same fish, but in the family. Okay. Well, this fish whole, I'm sure the fillets look fine. This fish whole looked scary. Um, it had a head. It had like an actual skull. Yes. And <laughs> yes. In which um, one of the fishmongers at your stand told me the head would slime over it's if you touched it. <laughs> It's true. They get slimy. Um, they also have what look like wings. Their their fins look like wings, so they're called robins because of that, too. They look like this strange mutant. But they're actually quite delicious if you can get past that, if you, uh-huh. can, if you can sort of discard the head and, and steam it. Right. And also, it's very good roasted. Those are good. You can mm. eat them raw, too. I mean, if had, you served it to me, I wouldn't know. Yeah. We have a fishmonger who's been making sea robin burgers, I believe. That's right. That's a very popular recipe at the stand right now, sea robin burgers. And the fishermen consider sea robins to be pests Uh of the highest order. They usually throw Uh them back. I regularly have people ask me, oh, you can eat those? The fishermen ask me, you can eat sea robins? Oh, wow. Of course. But they're just, they're mostly used for bait. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but they they are quite good. We used yeah. to just cut off the tails and grill them, mm-hmm. but many people won't try them. I think yeah. that's a bit of a hard sell. Well, you guys are seeing them, and uh, you know, face to face, and I, I can, I can. After seeing it, I, I'm. It's very interesting to see the fish. But if I didn't see that whole head and stuff, I probably um, wouldn't have minded eating it. So you haven't, have you, have you cooked one yet? I haven't. <laughs> next time. Next All right. Time. Next week. All right. Um, well, let's talk more about um, this book and some of the interesting sustainable uh, fish sort of trajectories that you guys have noted here after a quick little commercial break.
Cynthia, host of Primary Food, here with Anna Bonengel, a registered dietitian with Eat With Zest, eatwithzest.com, and we are here to talk about Bob's Red Mill and superfoods. So Anna, what is a superfood anyway? One way to think about it is if you think of foods along a spectrum, there are a few foods with fewer nutrients, and then there are foods that are packed rich with nutrients and antioxidants. And so superfoods are those that are on the furthest on the scale in terms of having the most nutrients and antioxidants. Which foods are considered superfoods? Some are super well-known, like blueberries, kale, salmon. But now people are also going nuts over lesser-known foods like goji berries, acai, flax, and chia seeds. And a really popular one now is black garlic. So if I'm trying to eat better, should I go on a strictly superfood diet? Well, you know, superfoods are, of course, great. And I will say the more you eat, the better. However, eating only superfoods would make you deprived of essential nutrients from nourishing food groups like whole grains. Okay, got it. Well, that's great because our sponsor at HRN, Bob's Red Mill, produces a lot of delicious whole grain products. You know, to be honest, I'm a huge Bob's Red Mill fan. I love a lot of the the whole grains that they provide, but I particularly love they've come out with a blueberry hazelnut oatmeal cup. That is totally delicious. It's got classic superfoods like blueberries, but also some of the more trendy ones like flax and chia seeds. Um, it's It's a really nice mix of trend and tradition. Bob's Red Mill doesn't chase fads. They just keep working hard to offer as many delicious whole grain and organic food options as possible in an endless commitment to good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. All right, we're back chatting with Stephanie Villani, co-owner of Blue Moon Fish, and Kevin Bay, who is the co-author of their new book, The Fisherman's Wife. So um, Blue Moon Fish has been around since the 80s. Um, They've been selling at the green market since forever. Um, This cookbook, I'm so glad it finally came out. Um, Thank you. um, But you have um, some really interesting stories here. Um, We were just actually talking about my black sea bass, which I um, ate yesterday. And uh, what's, you know, what's the trajectory for that? Because I understand, you know, there was a time that the, the, you know, bass were more endangered, but they've, what do you call it, recovered somewhat in this area. Most of the fish stocks have recovered, mm-hmm. and I don't think people know that. Oh, um, so they, they hear everything in the ocean is overfished, but we are catching a lot of fish off Long Island. Mm-hmm. I've always tried to uh, tell people about the black sea bass because I'd rather have them by that than the Chilean sea bass, which really is overfished. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not and the it's, same thing. No. no, it's not the same thing, and it's coming from the other side of the globe. Mm -hmm. This is local, fresh. It's fantastic. It can be eaten raw. Mm -hmm. Um, And people just don't know about it or won't try it. They'll Mm -hmm. ask for Chilean, and I'll always try to get them to try the local sea bass. Um, This year, it's very, very abundant. I'd say in the past two years, and this year, my husband says he's seen more black sea bass than he has in almost 30 years. Wow. And one of the reasons we think is because the climate's changing. The water mm. is getting warmer, so they're moving from the Chesapeake area up to Long Island. Unfortunately, the regulations haven't really caught up with that. Ah, so they have a, they have a limit that's going to go into the effect, even though there's like more fish, perhaps, that could... Yes. Yeah. Um, 
Seabass is on a quarterly quota system. When New York State commercial fishermen catch their quota for the quarter, it's shut down, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no matter how many are in the water. Okay. So we feel that that, um, I, don't, I don't know, that the data sort of has to be updated. Sure. That it hasn't and the quotas been. are sort of a moving target, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and they're, the DEC, the New York State DEC, uh, regulates the fisheries, and it, it takes time to do the studies. So, you know, uh-huh. what the fishermen are seeing and what their data says are not always, don't always mesh. Yeah, but so rising uh, or warming waters are good for perhaps black sea bass, but what about something that thrives in colder waters like cod or... Um, are, are we seeing less of them because of that? Well, I have heard from some of the fishermen that they're moving. They're moving north. Okay. So we are seeing less. And cod is another one that was very, very overfished. overfished in the 90s, yeah. It's been on a very big rebuilding program in all of um, New England, the Gulf mm-hmm. of Maine. And it still is. Um, but I know in the last few years we've seen some big cod off Montauk, which is a good sign. Mm-hmm. We we do sell cod in season, but I don't think we really we don't have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's still rebuilding, right? So there is one um, devastating loss uh, in the fishery in Long Island and Connecticut, which is lobster. And I didn't realize this was such a sharp. Um, you know, this is just a sudden and drastic uh, moment in time that they declined, which you guys write about. It. You, you write that um, when you first moved to Mattituck, which is where you're based, um, you know, eating lobster was everywhere. There'd be giant platters of red lobsters. People would be selling lobsters for very little and just eating lobster, lobster, lobster. <laughs> well, that's what we think of, you know, when we mm-hmm. think of uh, the lobster rolls and so forth on Long Island. Um, cheap food, right? Right but, there were, Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Go. There yeah. were um, tents on the side of the road for the people leaving, you know, to go back to the city where they could stop and buy a couple dozen lobsters mm-hmm. if they wanted on their way. And they were inexpensive. We sold them at the market. They were very, they were like a small, small, uh, like a pound, a pound and a half. But I think we we're charging eight ninety five a pound. Wow. wow. And I sold them for years and people loved them. You know, they were so happy with it. And then we had a big die-off uh-huh. in 1998. So, okay, first of all, eight ninety-five could buy you like maybe a quarter of a lobster roll right now. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so the die-off was caused um, by this chemical pesticide. Well, um, that summer they were spraying malathion because there was a West Nile virus. Mm-hmm. Um, and An they outbreak. were spraying in the city, too, because yeah. I remember seeing the planes in Brooklyn, and they were spraying all of Long Island. Now all of that pesticide ran into the water. Mm-hmm. Um, the lobsters are related to insects, so I think they're sensitive to that. And then we got a very warm, I think it was in September, we got a uh, really warm couple of days. The water temperature was high. Hmm. The storm came along and mixed up. You know, the runoff and the warm temperature between the two of them, I think 90% of the population died. And they didn't come back? Well, no, we're we're on the very southernmost area of lobsters. Okay. Long Island. Right. Um, right. In the Long northeast. Sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, no, I mean, there are some left, but very few. Right. I, a lot of the lobstermen we knew just had to quit. 
Yeah, that's really sad. I was, you know, reading about their their plights afterwards. A lot of them were clinging to the hope that the lobster would would rebound, mm-hmm. and they did. Um, the Connecticut and Long Island lobstermen did file a lawsuit against the company that made that chemical, and they won. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't enough. No, you know, they're re- still out of business. Right, right. And now we don't have lobster from this area. There's no commercial fishing for lobster. You don't sell them. There are very, very few. few. There are very few. We do okay. know. Maybe one guy comes out for them. (laughs) Instead of like this booming industry. Yes. But so all the lobster we get now are from where? Maine? Yeah, they're moving, you know, they're moving north. I think they're finding them in areas. They're moving from Long Island, Rhode Island, north. Mm -hmm. So because I I don't know if that's the water temperature again. Mm -hmm. They seem to be heading north and there's a ton of them in Maine. There's so many in Maine that... The uh, processors are trying to buy equipment so that they can freeze the lobster. They have so much <laughs> they of have it. Too much? Yes. Wow. <laughs> what other changes are sea changes are happening right now for, for seafood? Like what should we be what should we be eating more of? I guess porgies. They're they're in abundance or Oh yeah. What? There's tons okay. and tons of porgies around. Okay, what's this? Sand shark is another one. Now we that's also called dogfish. Sand shark or dogfish. Now in New England, the um, you know their equivalent of the DEC, we're trying to encourage the fishermen to catch the dogfish as uh, and to because ha- there isn't really a fishery for it. Most of it goes overseas to the UK for fish and chips. Oh, mm-hmm. why don't we make more fish and <laughs> chips? Well, it's a pretty good fish. It's very firm, very mild. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like to marinate it in something a little stronger. Mm-hmm. You can grill it. You can really cook it anyway because it's so firm. But And you can make delicious fish and chips with it. It's very inexpensive. It's very plentiful. And people don't know what it is. No, they don't. Well, we need to get on that. Maybe maybe with this book, because I noticed there was some wonderful recipe for Caesar salad with little croutons. That's right. Of these little like chunks they made and little kind of grilled or charred the outside, and then they're like croutons of yeah. fish. Yeah, that's uh, the blackened monkfish salad, mm-hmm. which you could certainly take dogfish and blacken it as well because it's very firm, can stand up to that high heat and all that spice, and it can be something mm-hmm. yummy and charred, and then toss it with a salad. You know, mm. it doesn't have to be fried with French fries. You know, mm-hmm. you, can, you right. can can cook it in a very healthy way. Um, all right. I've also had it poached, which is a healthy way to do it, with a little vinegar, a little mm-hmm. court bouillon, and it's delicious. All right. So there's also tuna you guys have sometimes, and I find that um, that's a very luxurious fish, right, to have fresh tuna steaks. But people always say, oh, isn't that overfished? So I would like to cure it right from, right from you guys. <laughs> What's the deal? Well, there tuna. are lots of different types of tunas and lots of different stocks of tunas all Blue over the fin. world. Yeah. yeah. Now, the bluefin, personally, I think that sh- we should not be allowed to catch the bluefin. It is still open right now. Wow. And, and actually, from what I've heard, um, that there are a lot of juvenile bluefin tunas around lately, which is good news. I didn't hey, know that. That's good. We don't sell that at our stand. We sell either yellowfin tuna or big eye tuna, which mm-hmm. is sort of our two of our. Oh, once in a while, we have albacore in mm-hmm. the summer. Um, but those are our mainstays, and they're fantastic. I don't feel like I'm, you know, missing anything by not having the bluefin. Right, right. I would prefer they give them a few years to build back the mm. stocks. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but everything we catch is, it's all very highly regulated. We have yes. to mm-hmm. report on what we catch, where we catch it, how much, how much is discarded. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very strict with it. You have to follow the rules or you'll lose your license, and no one wants that. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. But it's also good to know that when you go to your market stand, for instance, as opposed to a store, you don't you know where it's coming from. You know who's getting it, mm-hmm. who's following the rules, because you don't always have that information. Um, most other places, there's a high amount of... Uh, I've had authors here talking about this topic of food fraud and so forth. There's a high amount of, uh, n- let's say, non-transparency going on in seafood. Absolutely. So, and I think that, that... That's why, you know... That scares people. That scares you from tuna, right? Yeah. They want to yeah. know what they're eating for real. They don't mm-hmm. want to go order a lobster bisque in a restaurant and find out it was monkfish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I... I you know, we discourage that. We try to educate people as much as possible and, you know, show them what the real thing is. And, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. if they know the seasons, hopefully they'll know if they're eating local or not. If they go to a restaurant and they see something on the menu that's out of season, then right. that can lead to questions. Which yeah. Can be good. So. Well, I think having this book will also really help answer <laughs> many of those questions people have. I love the quote that uh, Paul Greenberg wrote here on the back for you guys. Uh, he's the author of Four Fish. Um, and he says, you know, this book makes the challenge of figuring out what's tasty and what's sustainable, what's local, what's in season, um, so much easier. And the recipes in it are delicious. And we didn't talk enough about that, but, you know, <laughs> have, hopefully everyone will check this out. Um, you can buy The Fisherman's Wife on your website. Yes. BlueMoonFish.com. Yes. Or you can stop by your stand um, at Union Square or Grand Army Plaza Green Market here in the city. Yeah. That's right. Or you. can you go to Mattituck and buy it from you guys there? Or no. Well, yeah, we're working on getting it in a few places cool. out on the North Fork. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. All right, that's all for today on Eat Your Words. We'll see you next week on Heritage Radio. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network, presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings.
Are you one of the millions of Americans who have trouble digesting gluten? Or are you looking to shed a few pounds by shifting towards a low-carb diet? Well, we've got just the answer for you. Almond flour. Made with 100% sweet almonds, it's the perfect alternative to traditional white flours. Alternative flours are sweeping the nation and taking the baking industry by storm. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson, and today we're looking at one small nut's journey through the mill and how almond flour can transform everything you thought you knew about baking. On this episode, I'll talk to our resident almond flour expert, Cynthia Cherish Malloran, host of the new podcast Wedding Cake here on HRN. She'll talk about the nutritional benefits of almond flour and how the grain is processed. Then I'll invite Eli Sussman, host of The Line and co-owner and chef of Samisa, to teach us his recipe for almond cake using Bob's Red Mill's almond flour. So stay tuned. I'm here with Katie Mosman-Wadler, the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. So Katie... It's 4.30 in the afternoon. How are you feeling? I mean, I'm always hungry, but at 4.30, this is the time when I start to think about cookies and how much I would like to have a cookie right now. <laughs> I'm thinking about snacks. Well, we probably shouldn't have cookies for an afternoon snack. What about something healthy like almonds? Yeah, that sounds okay. Not super exciting. I really want a cookie. Okay, well, maybe we could compromise. What if we made cookies using almond flour? We can use it in place of the white flour, and almond flour is high in protein, low in carbs, and low in sugar, so it'll be a lot healthier. That actually sounds so delicious. I think we should do it. Yeah, we can have our cookies and eat them too. All right, good deal. And now let's hear about the origins of almond flour and the benefits of using it from our very own expert, Cynthia Cherish Malloran, a.k.a. DJ Cherish the Love. Cynthia is the host of our new show on HRN, Wedding Cake, and she's also a killer DJ and even an ordained minister. So let's start from the beginning. Where does the magical nut, the almond, come from? Hey, so the almond is native to an area stretching from the northern Indian subcontinent westwards to Syria, Israel, and Turkey. It was spread by humans in ancient times along the shores of the Mediterranean into northern Africa and southern Europe, and more recently transported to other parts of the world, notably California. California, like, always gets the best stuff. Mm -hmm. So, Cynthia, I've heard a rumor that almonds aren't actually nuts. Is that true? That is absolutely right, Kat. The almond seed or fruit is not a true nut, but a droop. The almond is actually the seed of the fruit that grows on almond trees, a medium-sized tree that bears fragrant pink and white flowers. And like its cousins, peach, cherry, and apricot trees, the almond tree bears fruit with stone-like seeds or pits within. The seed of the almond fruit is what we refer to as the almond nut. So could you eat the fruit that the almond grows in? No, you know, you really can't. And when I was a kid, I went to visit an almond orchard, and I remembered picking what I thought was an apple off of the tree, bit into it, pretty awful, threw it out, grabbed another, quote, apple, bit into it, and my cousin said, that's not an apple, that's an almond. And he broke open the, quote, apple, and there it was, 
one almond. So I know that almonds are very healthy. What about the health benefits of almonds? Well, I'm glad you asked because there is a plethora of great health benefits in almonds. More than 65% of the fat in almond flour is monounsaturated, which is excellent for maintaining healthy cholesterol levels and good overall heart health, which we all love. Additionally, scientists find that almond consumption can reduce the risk of coronary heart disease by keeping blood vessels healthy. Almonds also help manage post-meal blood glucose levels, the presence of insulin in the blood, and oxidative damage, and they raise antioxidant levels in the blood after a meal. I had no idea that they did all those things. So maybe they should say an almond a day keeps the doctor away. Yeah, maybe closer to like um, a handful of almonds. But yes, they do have incredible benefits. It sounds like these nuts, sorry, fruits, have a lot more than meets the eye. Anything else we should know? Yes, plenty. Almonds are notoriously healthy nuts, providing a good amount of manganese and vitamin E, as well as a healthy serving of monounsaturated fats in each quarter cup serving. Because not only do almonds have a healthy boost of protein, they are also very low in carbohydrates and inherently gluten-free, which I love. So when they're ground into a flour, they add moistness and a rich, nutty taste to baked goods. And I'm going to be making a couple of almond flour gluten-free cakes on my show, Wedding Cake, this season. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for all this great info, Cynthia. You're welcome. Now let's turn to Eli Sussman, who is going to teach us how to use this awesome ingredient. Eli is the host of The Line here on Heritage Radio Network, and he's the chef and co-owner of Samisa, along with his brother, Max. Hey, Kat. So almond flour is made from almonds that have been blanched to remove the skins and then ground to a fine texture that is great for baking. So replacing 25% of the flour in your baking with almond flour will add wonderful texture and flavor while reducing the total carbohydrates. It can be used in savory applications as well, in place of breadcrumbs and meatballs, or even as a coating for chicken and fish. Awesome. So how do you use almond flour in your cooking at Samisa? We've been using almond flour in this really delicious uh, dessert that we make. It's an almond cake. We make it in these uh, small bunt pans, and then once we pop them out, we dust them with uh, powdered sugar. They're really nice, bite-sized, really delicious. That sounds so good. Thanks for sharing. So I will definitely be by Samisa soon to try that. Thanks to Cynthia for schooling me on almonds and to Eli for sharing his tips on using almond flour. You can find his recipe for Samisa's almond cake at bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Well, that's just about everything you could want to know about almond flour, and this is the season finale of Fresh Pickings. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out all of the episodes and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers, by going to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm Kat Johnson, and thanks for joining us.